So our mission here at Arctic Survival is to train personnel to survive and operate in the Arctic environment. They're gonna freeze if they just sit there. Like they will legitimately die if they stop moving, sit there and uh, think about their problems for too long. You have to do something about your problems. For us, it's all about planning for that worst day, whether it's that crew member having to eject over, you know, on the Arctic ice, or it's a member that's going out there to take care of, uh, you know, a remote site here in Alaska. We have to be able to prepare them for those conditions. Hey, this is John Ambo, Editorial Director at the Modern War Institute, and in this episode of the MWI Podcast, you're going to hear from Ryan Burke. Regular listeners will recognize his voice from a recent episode we released, and this is another related to Project 6633, an initiative Ryan is a co-director of that focuses on polar security. Ryan recently had the chance to visit the Air Force's Arctic Survival Training School at Isleson Air Force Base in Alaska. While he was there, he sat down and talked to several members of the school's staff. And lucky for us, they recorded the conversation. You can listen as they describe the unique challenges that forces operating in the extreme environment of the Arctic confront. You'll also hear them talk about how they train students at the school so they are best prepared and equipped to manage and overcome those challenges. It is a great conversation that will give listeners an insider's view of some really remarkable military training. Before we get to it, just a couple quick notes. First, remember that if you aren't subscribed to the MWI podcast, you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's Ryan Burke at the Air Force's Arctic Survival Training School. I am joined today by an instructor cadre, the Arctic Survival Training School. I'm joined by Major Tyler Williams, the 66th Training Squadron Det 1 Commander. I'm also joined by Master Sergeant Garrett Wright, the Superintendent of the Arctic Survival Training School. I'm joined as well by Staff Sergeant Jeff Waterbury, NCOIC Operations, the Arctic Survival Training School, as well as Senior Airman Jesse Cash, a SEER Specialist for the Arctic Survival Training School. Gentlemen, thank you again for taking the time to have a chat with me today. I appreciate it. Uh, for our listeners, just so they are aware, we are on uh, on site here in the Arctic Survival Training School at Isleson Air Force Base. Uh, when I was walking over this morning, the temperature was negative 40 degrees. My eyelash is sufficiently stuck to my to my face. Uh, so it was, a, it was a hell of an experience for me just to walk over here and uh, and get to really experience that, that legitimate Arctic cold. So uh, thanks for dialing up the good weather for me. I appreciate it. Um, so what we're going to do for the listeners, we're going to run through some questions here. I just uh, wanted to get some some perspective from our folks that, uh, that that run this training for the Air Force and really even for the Joint Forces. We have a lot of folks from different services that come up and take part in this training. So we'll we'll go through the training. We'll go through the mission of the school. We'll talk about exactly what these folks do and why they do it and, and really why it's important for the the future of broadly great power competition, but more importantly, preparing our, our military personnel to, uh, to, sustain, to sustain themselves excuse me, in potentially some of the worst conditions imaginable should they face that reality. Again, we are, um, we're excited to have this conversation and, and what we'll do is just go ahead and start, uh, 
Major Williams, I'll, I'll go ahead and direct the first question to you. Uh, first of all, thank you for coordinating my visit up here. It's been uh, it's been an awesome opportunity to come up and observe and watch you guys work and, and take part in, in uh, the training here. This is certainly experiential and immersive, and I value I value your support as well as Master Sergeant Wright in, in coordinating getting me up here. So with that said, um, can you talk to us about the mission of Arctic Survival Training School and tell us what you do here, why you do it, and why is this training important for the the future military environment that we are operating in? All right, absolutely. Well, first off, uh, we just want to say thank you for uh, making the time to come up here to Arctic Survival, uh, especially with the COVID environment that we have. You picked a good week, negative uh, 40 right now. Uh, so our mission here at Arctic Survival is to train personnel to survive and operate in the Arctic environment. Uh, we do that in a variety of ways. We have two primary classes that we teach here. The, the number one is SV87 Alpha, which is our Arctic Survival course. Uh, we do 15 iterations each year from October through March. Uh, the target audience for that is air crew personnel, uh, uh, folks that are stationed here in Alaska. Uh, those are kind of the primary customers, uh, folks that are doing polar overflight missions, uh, nuclear security personnel in the lower 48, uh, effectively anybody that will be operating uh, in any of those Arctic environments will provide that training. The, the course itself is five days long, Monday through Friday. It's two days in the classroom, Monday and Tuesday. Wednesday through Friday, uh, students are out in the field getting that experiential training that you talked about. So that's our primary avenue for instructing students. Uh, we also offer SV-81 Charlie, which is up in Utkiavik or Barrow, Alaska. That training is tailored towards our SEER specialists for their five-level upgrade. Uh, those are week-long courses, uh, one day of academics, and then four days out in the field. And that's a barren Arctic environment up there. Uh, students learn how to survive, operate without fire. Uh, they're building snow shelters, snow caves, uh, experiencing those extreme environments that you're going to see up far farther north, you know, in the Arctic Circle itself, winds 30 to 50 miles an hour, uh, darkness, and it's cold. Uh, so those are our two primary courses. Uh, outside of those, we also provide training for other mission partners. So each February, typically, we'll send two SEER specialists uh, over to Greenland to provide training for the Royal Danish Air Force. So we've been doing that for many years. Uh, provide the air crew and ground personnel and support personnel with key training in the Arctic environment. Um, and then typically each May and June, uh, we send four SEER specialists to Greenland Camp Raven to provide training for the 109th Airlift Wing. So those are our four major courses that we provide here at Arctic Survival. And, you know, why it's important, the big why behind this, you saw it this morning, the negative 40 temperatures out there. If you don't have the training in an environment like this, you will either injure yourself or you could potentially die. It's it's something that you can't go into blind. You can't watch a YouTube video about. It has to be experiential training. Uh, and as we change with uh, the Arctic pivot for the Air Force, the DOD moves into this. You're seeing more folks that are operating in this Arctic environment. Uh, so getting that training is essential because it doesn't matter what kind of equipment you have. It doesn't matter, you know, the, the kit out for the aircraft. If you don't have the training to survive, if you have a bad day out there, that's a waste, right? So for us, it's all about planning for that worst day, whether it's that air crew member having to eject over, 
you know, on the Arctic ice, or it's a member that's going out there to take care of, uh, you know, a remote site here in Alaska. We have to be able to prepare them for those conditions. So that's one of the things that I think is so valuable to have a conversation like this is because we now, and Major Williams, thank you for the uh, the rundown, because now our listeners can get a better understanding that we have these capabilities, that we have these capabilities here in-house to train our folks that, that are considered, as you mentioned before, the high-risk personnel, the personnel that might, sustain, or might uh, be put into these extreme conditions, and you give them the tools then to be able to survive in these conditions. So Master Sergeant Wright, I'm going to go to you for for the next question, and it's something that uh, you and I have spoken about over the last uh, couple of days that I've been here, but it's it, it ties to this idea that uh, we as a military and we as an institution, the Department of Defense, will not go to these condi- will go to these environments, right? That the military doesn't have the will, the resolve, the training, the equipment, the the wherewithal to to succeed in these environments. You guys clearly prove that wrong every single day by being here, by surviving and, and really even thriving and showing other airmen and other personnel that come through just how to do that. What do you say to folks like that that say we can or won't do it? Uh, well, uh, what I can say is we've been doing this a very long time. The program was stood up back in uh, 1946, and uh, we've been training people since 1947 uh, in, until current day. Um, Alaska definitely presents some pretty unique survival conditions that the air crew members have to overcome. And with the, with the Air Force, there, there's probably no one else out there flying in uh, as a remote area, uh, at, you know, dealing with the tyranny of distance, um, extended recovery times. There are lots of factors that, uh, that do make survival a challenge up here. Um, but we get roughly 30, 35 students every week. Uh, we take them out in conditions. There is no temperature limit. If it's negative 45, we're going to be out there training. If it's negative 60, we're still going to be there. There's no black flag conditions yeah, up in Arctic Survival School, right? Military often do have those black flag conditions, but I can tell you what, it, we're going to be out there regardless. And uh, it really provides a unique opportunity for the air crew to test their equipment and to develop their their tactics to overcome all of those elements. Uh, they're all going to have to make shelter. Uh, they're going to sleep out there overnight for two consecutive nights. Um, they're going to build fires. Uh, they're going to learn how to use their equipment as effectively as possible. Or, uh, And there are some checks and balances for us to help them out and kind of save them from themselves, if you will. But by the end of training, these guys have a good idea how they're going to survive, regardless of how cold it is. You know, I'd, I'd say... You know, down to negative 60, there, there's a very strong chance that they're going to be able to survive multiple days out there and uh, return back and, and continue fighting on. Out of curiosity, you said negative 60. What is the coldest temperature any of you have have experienced to date? Because negative 40 was, was an eye-opener for me this morning. I've been to Fairbanks a couple times in the past and negative uh, 10, negative 15. But coming out of my, my room this morning at negative 40 was, was a shock. It was a slap in the face. So ambient temperatures, you know, normally it gets down to negative 45 uh, every year here in Fairbanks. It's pretty common. Um, the wind chill factor is something that most people don't quite understand. It, you're like, oh, it's it's negative 15 degrees but when the wind is gusting 50 mile an hour up on the tundra for our uh, our barren land operation in barrow it is a whole different beast um the the rate that you lose heat the blowing snow uh 
it's it's just a whole different game. And I'd say we experienced down to negative sixty up there, wind chill, and that is just as just as nasty as being down here at negative forty five with completely still conditions. Okay, so negative sixty to put it in perspective, how quickly will that turn exposed skin to frostbitten skin? I don't have the exact time frame, but I kid you not, a minute and a half is going to result in in damage. Um, the skin's going to turn white. It's going to start to freeze. Frost nip's going to set in. And if you don't correct that problem within a matter of three or four minutes, you will have minor frostbite that will continue to progress. And uh, that will just make using your equipment uh, and, and maintaining your life much, much more difficult, especially for an extended duration. So it, it's both physical and psychological manifestations of suck in a, in a manner of speaking, right? And this is one of those things that this is why, frankly, I'm here doing this immersion research, but also why we bring folks up to or the, this, these folks bring uh, military personnel up here to experience this stuff. So with that said, let's get into some of the conditions and I'll turn it to, uh, to the airmen in the room. So, um, so Staff Sergeant Waterbury, can you talk to us about in your experience, what do you think are some of the major limitations to operating in a cold weather environment should some of these folks get uh, find themselves in the unfortunate circumstances to be in, in in an arctic environment what are the the things that they tend to struggle with the most in your experience well struggling with the most here and then struggling in real life if they were in one of those situations would be you know two different things because i'd say real life they were actually out there biggest struggle they would run into is the equipment that they have and that's why when they come through this course we try and have them use the equipment that they would have in real life so that they get immersion with it they get comfortable with it and they can learn it and know that it works um that being said we can't always get everyone exactly the right equipment that they would have there's too many aircrafts that come through here uh but you think about you know a fighter aircraft they got sleeping bag rated to minus 20 they go down in minus 60 they'll survive in that minus 20 sleeping bag but they're going to have to do the other things that we're teaching them to stay warm as far as you may have to sleep for an hour and then get up and move around to keep yourself warm and then get back in there and try and sleep there isn't going to be the perfect fix of put everything they need for a whole survival excursion into one seat kit uh so their equipment probably would be the hardest thing that they would face if they were in no kidding, one of these situations out there in barren land for multiple days. Okay. So Senior Airman Humple, or excuse me, I'm sorry, I, I was reading something else. I apologize. I, I get out of that out. Senior Airman Cash, the, so uh, Staff Sergeant Waterbury just talked to us about the, the equipment being a necessity for, um, for successful Arctic surviving conditions and to be able to, to really do as, as best as you possibly can. Have you noticed beyond the physical manifestations, have you noticed any of the psychological manifestations, any of the psychological issues? that the students have, have dealt with becoming as something more challenging to, uh, to deal with than the physical environment? And what can you speak to about the, the psychological aspects of this kind of training? Uh, for the, I guess for the psychological aspect of it, um, the, the confidence that the training gives them um, is definitely a plus there. Uh, but they don't spend enough time in training to actually get what it's like to actually feel that loneliness, um, that uh, the isolation. Uh, so in a real life situation, that's going to be one of the bigger things that they're going to have to deal with uh, psychologically is just being out there on their own, um, having to fend for themselves, make sure that they're staying alive, staying healthy, 
Um, that's, that's one of the things that, uh, you know, I, I personally try to drive home when we go over the psychological stresses while we're out in the field is that that's, that's what you're going to have to deal with. And you're going to have to keep that attitude at a fairly high level. I mean, obviously we don't want to have the, if you're in a group setting, the, the guy that's always happy, um, cause that causes other problems there. But, uh, you know, having, having that mindset of this is going to be a terrible situation and recognize that and be able to, to deal with it as it comes up. So the, I want to come back to that and it really can be anybody that wants to answer this. So we talk about, again, the physical issues, the psychological issues, the, and then the equipment and then everything that you guys provide by way of experiential immersion and so forth. What is the, what is the central challenge to to operating in a cold weather environment that uh, that you think would plague a unit, right? So you guys do individual training here, and that's designed that way as part of the survival training because you're trying to simulate maybe a downed airman condition or downed airman situation. But if you were to extend this training logic into more of a group setting, what do you think would be the the fundamental challenge for a unit of some kind that might find themselves operating in an extreme environment? like this it could be conditions based it could be psychological anything that you think would be of of note for our listeners to think about these conditions yeah i think you're nailing the head with that that i think psychological would be the biggest thing uh because you can set them up with an installation that will work it is possible you can keep them somewhere where they're going to be heated and they'll be warm uh but really you send someone that far remote even here in fairbanks you know it's remote but there is still things for the unit to go do you send someone way up to the coast where there's nothing else to do, that psychological aspect is going to play a huge toll on them, uh, especially they have less sunlight up north than we do here. Uh, so that psychological factor, that is going to be huge. And depending on the size of the unit too, I mean, even us here, we're a small unit, but we all get on each other's nerves at some point. Throughout the season, it happens, you know, and we try and push through that and we do uh but yeah there's definitely times where you have to look at yourself and like okay i'm overreacting to this just because i spend every single day with this person and if i was further north i wouldn't be able to get away from that person ever and that's a good point and what our listeners can't see unfortunately because it's a podcast environment is everybody else is chuckling faces in the background so they clearly agree with uh <laughs> with saffron waterbury so master on right go yeah, so this is, you know, the the Arctic winter is the darkest, coldest environment in the world. Um, there, There's nothing, been, been a lot of places doing a lot of survival stuff in my career, and there is nothing like this place when it comes to the psychological stress that goes hand in hand with that. And uh, we can really see that in our students commonly. Uh, the course isn't extremely long, just like Sergeant Waterbury said, um, it's, it's, two and a half days, uh, there's, there's not a significant amount of time to really show these guys what isolated Arctic survival is like. Um, but we, we can kind of plant the seed and give them a, a small opportunity because most of the time, uh, for at least our air crew, if, if these individuals, these fighter pilots go through an ejection, there's a strong chance of them getting injured, which also makes them more susceptible to cold injuries which just, so problems compound very quickly. Um, it was probably a stressful event in the process of them leaving their aircraft. They're probably sweating at that point. You know, the old adage is to sweat in the Arctic is to die in the Arctic. 
Uh, so they're, they're trying to, to use a very small set of equipment that will fit in an extremely small survival kit to, to overcome large problems and large challenges. And uh, if, if they don't know what they're going to do prior to them being in that situation by getting the training that we provide, um, there's, there's a lot, of, a lot of chance in them not overcoming it. But luckily, you know, we, we can provide a lot of that to them. So that's that brings me to the next question. We talk a lot about the training and the specific methods that you employ here, and how you expose the uh, the students that come through, obviously to the conditions, but then how you tell them and how you you educate them to survive despite the conditions and how, as harsh as they are. You guys talked about in the beginning that this course has been around since the late 40s. How has the training evolved? And what, not only how has the training evolved, but how, what should we be doing to maybe modernize if that's even, and I apologize for a leading question, but if that's, if that is, should in fact be the case, what should we be doing to modernize the training? What do we need to do to better reflect the near peer environment that we are soon finding ourselves operating in more and more? So uh, we've been doing some things with the course here, both uh, for SV87, which is the course we provide here at Ileson, and SV81 Charlie, which is the course we teach up at Barrow to incorporate a little bit more of the uh, you know, geopolitical, you know, key players in the Arctic. You know, who are they? What does the you know, rescue environment look like? Try to expand the scope on some of the things that we teach here so people can understand that environment a little bit better. Uh, with that, it's, it's looking at you know, what's the right training for the right individuals. Um, and that's something that we're actively thinking about and looking at here at Arctic, you know, is the training that we provide here at Ileson is, is that the correct training for folks that are going to be operating in the European Arctic or, you know, doing some different mission sets over there, or even here in Alaska, is that going to prepare them for the conditions that they might see out there? So it's an active thing. Uh, certainly the last several years, uh, there's been an increased interest in, in the Arctic in general. You have the Air Force Arctic strategy coming out not too long ago. Uh, there's other key players that have released their strategy. So that's one thing that we look at here is, okay, we provide this training. It's been effectively the same since 1947. But what does the future look like? For us, it's, okay, the right training for the right individual, for the right environment that they're going into. Anything else that you guys want to add to that? Master and right, go. Uh, well, you know, the current course that we teach here at Ileson is, is there's very different conditions compared to the, the course we teach uh, way up north in Barrow. Um, in this environment, it's very still. There's very little wind. There's lots of trees. Um, it, it is a great course to kind of show students how they need to use their equipment and meet their basic survival needs. But the, the challenges are inherently different when it comes to a more tundra-like area survival. Um, right now, we're, we're trying to adapt courseware to, to meet those needs. And uh, l quite a few individuals over the past two years have, have reached out to us. Um, and they've, they've shown a great interest in developing their own kind of organic uh, Arctic survival training uh, training courses and they, they've asked us, you know, what, what can you guys do for us? And, uh, really, you know, our, our job here is to repair aircrew for the worst. And we're going to continue trying to provide, uh, the most high risk individuals with the highest caliber training to the environments that they're going to specifically operate in. Cause when we're looking at the, the different environments of the Arctic, 
there's there's a lot of different biomes that uh, that span the globe and it's it's not all tree line it's not all tundra there's there's coastal regions in the arctic there's ice caps um the the conditions in greenland on the ice cap are flat dry windy and there's there's nothing to hide behind um you trying to dig a snow cave on the ice cap in greenland is probably not going to be very effective but uh, we have other shelters that we train uh, students to build in those conditions so really identifying where the students are going to be operating and providing them the specific training that will will give them the ability to succeed in wherever that may be. And so that raises the question about what Major Williams mentioned with regard to the mobile training teams. And so if that if you see that as as an opportunity to get out and immerse yourselves and provide training to specific units in particular areas, like you gentlemen just said, relative to the, those specific conditions they are going to be dealing with, how do you how do you how do you execute that? What do you what do you need to do? How do you how do you make that happen? So there's there's two major pieces to this puzzle. First off, their their equipment. Um, like, like we've all been saying, it's very important that they use the specific equipment that they're going to have on their missions. We can give them representative items, but, uh, I'd, I'd much rather provide them exactly with what they have. So there's no question on what they need to do when they find themselves in these more or less emergency situations that they might need to, you know, dig in and let the blizzard blow over to maintain their life. Um, the second piece of that is the training aspect, which we've, we've been kind of, uh, preaching about. Um, only after they have the proper equipment and the proper training will they have the confidence to survive and, and overcome some, you know, the nastiest environment uh, in Earth. And we, we haven't even, you know, mentioned if they find themselves in a combat scenario. So, you know, our major focus is overcoming environmental problems, you know, and environmental conditions, but uh, it, it can get worse. And I think everybody knows that. Anybody else had anything uh, to add to to that? Yeah, so so to add to that, the uh, to kind of tack on to what Sergeant Wright said, you you've got the equipment piece on that, but then there's also the uh, you know for the I guess training syllabus piece of this is is getting for us courseware something is important getting the the baseline set. Uh, you've got discussions that will evolve into what are the requirements for these folks. That's why. It's kind of an exciting time for Arctic because there's a lot of people trying to figure out, well, what kind of training do we need? What does that look like? And what's the requirement for that look like? So, you know, whether it's folks here in Alaska or in other locations, they're actively exploring that and looking into it and trying to figure that piece out. So, and I and I like that idea for the folks listening at home to to, to really kind of double down on this idea. Is the idea of a mobile training team is really fascinating for folks like me on the outside, because we look at at what you folks do, right? And then obviously folks like me get an opportunity to come up and uh, and experience some of these things. But I realize I look around the class cadre this week, for example, right? We have coasties in the class. We have you were supposed to have a couple of uh, Navy SEALs in the in the class this week. Um, you've had Marine reconnaissance units here. You've had Army special operations or special forces units here. You've had um, a handful of other folks in, from around the various services, all of whom who have unique missions relative to everybody else. And it's not necessarily a one size fits all type of type of experience. So it, it really lends the um, lends itself to that argument that it sounds logical to have something like a mobile training team established where you can go out and provide these these skill sets and, and this experience to folks in the, those environments that they're operating in 
and and with the skills and the equipment that they will use rather than a, a one-size-fits-all model here. So that sounds like an interesting um, interesting concept. So Matt Chardonnay looks like you had something else to add. Yeah, and I, I would say um, we operating in the Arctic is definitely a layered problem, and I've I've know that I've I've talked to um, a, a medical group out of J Bear that uh, was asking what it would take to uh, be able to operate and provide care at negative 60. And uh, the topics of equipment were brought up, the, the topics of training were, were brought up. And uh, one thing that's, that we were realizing is um, ensuring the personnel can take care of themselves is kind of the first step in, in operating in the Arctic. After, after they have a plan, they know how to use their equipment, they can, they can perform emergency procedures to keep themselves safe. Only after that point can they then start caring for other people and uh, successfully operating in, in the extreme environment. And uh, that's the thing. If, as, as an individual, if you can't take care of yourself up here, you're going to become a liability. And I think that's a pretty unique thing to, to many of the other environments. Um, you can, you can fake a lot of stuff when it's 70 degrees outside and, uh, you know, there's, there's tons of logistics and there's roads everywhere up here in the Arctic. There's one road here in Alaska that goes North. That's it. Um, there's your water freezes in your water bottle within 10 minutes, you know, a full bottle of water is an ice cube that you're not thawing out for the next hour and a half. And let you, unless you put that thing inside your, inside your jacket and let your body heat warm it up. Like there's a lot of very unique problems that have to be overcome. And, um, if you've, if you've never operated or trained in this environment, there's going to be major gaps that that people are going to find and people are going to get injured unless they receive the proper training and uh, figure these things out before they're asked to actually go out on their missions. So let's talk more about that. We've talked, we've kind of touched on the psychological aspects. We've touched on the physical aspects of, of the environment. What should people know? about operating in these kind of conditions, if you're trying to conduct military operations, be it survival or be it um, any sort of extended unit operation, what should people really know if they've never been up here? What is it like beyond just being cold? How would you describe it? Uh, That's a hard one to narrow down. Uh, Just the one thing that they should know. Really the biggest thing that they're going to have to know is how they react to the cold. Because every single person reacts differently. If you go out on any of our training with us, every instructor is probably going to have different boots on. Every instructor is wearing different layers because every person regulates temperature differently. Uh, So that person needs to pretty much get thrown into that environment until they figure out how their body reacts to the cold. If their feet run hot but their hands get cold. And then they can kind of tailor the equipment that they're going to be getting to them. But until you actually get into that situation, we can all look at them and go, these boots are great. They're amazing. But then they put them on when they get out there and they get frostbite because maybe they're too warm for their feet. So their feet got sweaty and then froze. Uh, so the biggest thing is going to be they need to know how their body reacts to that cold. Okay. Let's go back into a, um, a discussion on what you mentioned in the beginning, you gentlemen, about the barren land training up in the northern slope of Alaska and what you do, why you do it, and how is that environment different? And what is, what's different about that training environment that, that all of our listeners should know? Uh, so the biggest difference about being there and 
minus the fact that that is all barren land where this is tree land, is here in Fairbanks we get extreme temperature fluctuations. There have been, back three years ago when they used to do the barren land training nearby here, there used to be classes that would come through and they would have a 30 degree positive week. And that's not really Arctic training. Up there, once we moved up there, I've never seen it warmer than minus 15, minus 20, and that's not factoring in wind chill. Uh, so up there, you know it's always going to be a miserable experience for them. So like I was talking about, they need to be thrown into it. They're going to feel it up there, and they're actually going to learn it there. So that was the big push for the change up there to conduct barren land training. And Sergeant Wright might be able to expound upon that. Yeah, so uh, up there in Barrow, we have some pretty unique opportunities uh, to to extend training just a bit. Um, our our primary customer base up there are SEER specialists that also already have six months to a year of prior survival training. So these are seasoned guys, the the best in the DoD at survival, uh, I would say at least. Um, we we take them out there for a four and a half day field training exercise, and if if you've ever been at a constant negative 20 to negative 55 degree you know, wind chill type temperatures for four and a half days, um, if it could go wrong, it, it probably would. And uh, with that extended duration, we test them and we force them to follow the principles. Um, if they don't follow the principles, there's a strong chance they're going to get frostbite. And we do offer a pretty significant level of monitoring to make sure they do come through that training with all their fingers and toes, but uh, they they have to earn it. Um, there are no trees up there. There is no fuel. There's no fire unless you bring in some sort of stove with you. Uh, they survive with just their clothing, their body heat, and the shelters that they create. We do supplement their food with MREs, you know, what, what you would experience for a normal military operation, but uh, they keep themselves warm. Uh, like Sergeant Waterbury talked about before, sometimes they're, they're running laps to increase their body temperature because they're realizing that uh, they're going to freeze if they just sit there. Like they will legitimately die if they stop moving, sit there, and uh, think about their problems for too long. You have to do something about your problems. And uh, it gives them the experience to go back and tell their students, this is what the Arctic's like. Um, this is what you have to do to survive. You're going to have minimal equipment. You're going to have possibly, you know, an extended period of time while you wait for recovery forces to come pick you up. Just the vastness of the terrain is is nothing like anywhere else in the world. It could be days until even the storm blows over and you can get a rescue helicopter up there to pick you up. You know, no one's coming for you until the weather clears and it's it's all on you or it's, you know, these SEER specialists learn it's all on them to instill that knowledge on their air crew that this is the worst, worst possible situation that they can find themselves. And I always say, you know, there, there's two environments that uh, that really, you know, scare me a little bit. One, like open ocean in an, in an extreme cold environment and the tundra because there's very little to hide behind in both of those places. So to that point, and I'm going to ask you guys to extend your your expertise a little bit and put on maybe some of your uh, your policy or strategy caps. There's some active discussion right now talking about how the US military should consider 
building new infrastructure, for lack of a better way to describe it, in in and along the northern slope of Alaska, places like Prudhoe Bay um, and, and Point Barrow and a handful of others, right? And so you folks have been up there. You, you've ex, you've experienced the conditions, as Master and Wright you just talked about, as Staff Sergeant Waterbury mentioned as well. You've experienced what it's like to be there in a survival situation. What do you think would be the, the major challenges to being there in a long-term, sustained military presence manner, albeit with with presumed infrastructure and a handful of other things. But nonetheless, just walking around here at Ileson is a challenge, right? Especially a negative 40 degree temperature, just walking five minutes across the base, you could you could succumb to some, some cold weather injury if you're not properly equipped. So if we were to adopt this idea and and move a, a contingent of military personnel up there, not all the politics and everything notwithstanding, and we just we could do it, what would be the significant challenges, the major challenges to sustaining presence up there? Yeah, so the you kind of alluded to the uh, you know the baseline would be obviously having the logistics to be up there, but you have the the psychological aspects that you have to deal with. You know, in an environment that we're here in at Ileson, you know, resiliency, being able to get through this winter here, it can be tough uh, for folks that have been in Alaska and have the tools that they need to succeed. And you get farther farther north there in the Arctic Circle, and you've got you know a couple of months at least without sunlight in Barrow. So you have that whole psychological aspect that you have to deal with with those airmen. Uh, another thing, uh, you, you have the considerations with uh, the local community up there, uh, integrating with uh, the new Anupiat Eskimo uh, culture up there in Barrow. That's one thing uh, that we didn't mention when we're talking about 81 Charlie training is that we actually do a cultural immersion at the end of that training with uh, the Anupiat Eskimo up there to kind of give these search specialists another avenue into understanding the environment, right? So the cultural values, uh, the traditions that they have over the thousands of years that allowed them to survive in that environment, right? So, you know, how do you take people, put them in this hostile environment, and how do they deal with it mentally? And how do they incorporate it into the community up there? You know, that's two challenges I see. Yeah, I think one of the hardest things about putting people up there would be is really you you couldn't do a voluntold up there if you sent someone up there against their will it would not go well i don't know if i can say that but uh yeah you would you would need some hardened individuals up there people that want to go and do it and maybe keep it to a one to two year remote uh, if you kept someone that didn't want to be up there for too long that would end up being very bad not just on themselves but potentially on an entire unit too it would have to be people that got along and could withstand that kind of environment. Um, so, guys, thanks. This has been a great conversation. I want to start wrapping it up here and and uh, maybe just get at a couple more of the the significant issues that beyond the the experience here, some of the things that that our listeners that are engaged in academic research or in policy work should know and maybe consider as they engage further and, and try to advance and influence this conversation. So, with that said, you get a a sweater wearing academic like me, even though I've been in a uniform, I come up here and I'm looking to experience what you all do so I can better speak to the issues of, of operating polar military operations and survival conditions and so forth. What would you say to the academic and or policy community about this environment, the Arctic, and what would, what should we all collectively know as we engage in the policy debates and as we engage in these discussions about in doing more and more military operations? What would, if you had the platform, which I'm giving you right now, to scream from the rooftops and tell us, hey, you're missing this, you're missing that, what should we know? What should we think about? Uh, 
Well, the longer we're here in Alaska, the the more we realize that there are some extreme risks, more so than anywhere else in the environment, to operating here. Um, the climate is is unlike anywhere else, and uh, our school house is a little bit different compared to a lot of the other uh, Arctic warfare schools around the military. Um, most of the most most of the other schools have more of a an Arctic leadership type uh, course. Um, they teach people how to lead troops in the Arctic. They and with all of these courses, most of them are are highly logistically supplied. They're sleeping in tents. There, uh, there's stoves that keep them warm at night. They, they have a ton of gear. And, uh, what we do slightly differently is, uh, provide aircrew operators and, and other high risk of isolation personnel with an opportunity to, uh, to get out there and survive without really any of that stuff. Um, on an individual's worst day, uh, they're going to have to survive with the equipment they have on their person and maybe in a rucksack or or maybe what can fit into a vehicle. And uh, that's what they get from this course. Um, it's almost like an alone and afraid or unafraid type of mentality where they're going to have to overcome the odds and and pull themselves through. And it's not just the leaders. It's every airman out there matters and everyone will have to take care of themselves or they'll become a liability in this environment. Yeah, so so when I look at that, uh, it just boils down to the training piece on this. Um, you know, giving people the tools they need to have the confidence to go operate out there. You know, we can operate in the Arctic. We've been doing it for a lot of years, uh, but you have to have the right training. Right. And whether it's the, the F-35 pilot here, getting them out there in the cold weather gear they're going to have if they eject, having them the, give them the confidence to be able to go out there and know, hey, if it's a bad day, I'll make it through that night or, you know, one or two days out there isolated. Or it's, uh, folks that are going to remote sites here in Alaska. Give them the, the keys to that, which is experiencing these conditions, understanding themselves. So that's the first part you got to understand how you're going to respond to the environment understanding your equipment and then understanding the Arctic environment. Those things work together. So you, you can look at it from a standpoint of equipment or basing or all these other things. But if people don't have the right kind of training to operate in those areas, then, you know, you're setting them up for uh, significant risks. So it's possible we've been doing it. It's all about training. All right. Well, that's, that's a great uh, note to end on. I want to uh, thank the instructor cadre here at the Arctic Survival Training School, Major Williams, Master Sergeant Wright, Staff Sergeant Waterbury, and Senior Airman Cash. Gentlemen, thank you for the time. Thank you for this conversation. It was insightful. And I'm hoping that our listeners now having listened to this and they can visualize and maybe even imagine just some of the, the immense challenges that you all deal with up here that you try to work our folks uh, through and, and give them the tools to succeed in the event that they they have a bad day because like uh, major williams you've said before in past conversations everything in the arctic is trying to kill you and you give them the tools to uh, to hopefully survive and and uh, put off that uh, that inevitability so again gentlemen thank you for having me up here thank you for the time and the opportunity and uh, we look forward to hearing your comments and uh, please let us know if you'd like to get in touch with any of these folks here at the arctic, arctic survival training school we'd be happy to put you in touch with them and provide their contact information so thanks for listening
Hey, thank you so much for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. Thanks again. Thank you.